0: You're enjoying your day, everything's going your way. When the comes Debbie Downer. Always there to tell you about a new disease. A car accident or killer bees. <laughs> Banger to spare you, Debbie, please, but you can't stop Debbie Downer.
1: Have you guys seen that Debbie Downer SNL skit? It's one of the older ones. The setup for the skit is very relatable. You're in a social situation that you can't leave, like a wedding or a family gathering. But you're making the best of it, right? I mean, you're just making some small talk, just trying to pass the time. And you say something like, man, the traffic was crazy. And then you get smacked with something like, nothing compared to the disaster the Chinese are going through. (laughs) Or you say, yeah, I actually would like a piece of cake. And. Boom! With all the refined sugars we're eating, America's experiencing a virtual epidemic of juvenile diabetes. It's funny, and obviously relatable. I think that everybody has run into the brick wall of a Debbie Downer. But when it comes to government, politics, or, I mean, the state of our country, I worry that we're all kind of becoming the Debbie Downer. So many people have this negative perception of government. A majority of Americans see their government as corrupt and rigged against them. Nearly half of Americans say they feel more and more like a stranger in their own country. An Associated GFK poll found that only 13% of Americans approve of Congress. Many Americans are losing faith in the military.
0: A series of decisions from its last term, most notably the one to overturn Roe v. Wade, sent public approval of the court to its lowest rating ever, according to NBC News polling.
1: And look at this. Nearly 3 in 10 Americans overall agree it may be necessary at some point soon for citizens to take up arms against the government. It's actually like cliche at this point to say our system is broken or politicians are corrupt. You hear it so often it's really stopped being interesting. Pew conducted a poll in which 6 out of 10 Americans said that they weren't satisfied with how democracy was working in America. That's not a political party that you don't belong to, it's not an idea that you disagree with, or a politician that you don't like. It's our literal system of government, our most fundamental idea, the idea at the core of this country. And 6 in 10 Americans think that it's not working. And while we're talking about depressing stats, consider that 85% of Americans think the U.S. political system needs major changes or needs to be completely reformed. Consider if you saw that on the review for a restaurant that you were considering going to. Like, 6 in 10 people say that this place sucks. Are you going to go? No. And I mean, those stats concern me, right? They make me sad. But the one that really gets me, the Debbie Downer death punch, is that 58% of Americans don't think that the system can change. (laughs) We don't believe in ourselves. We don't believe in each other. It really bothers me. I think it's like a cancer. And it infects all of us, right? This idea that nothing can change, that there's nothing we can do, that nothing will ever get better. That idea, it's so contagious. And it's deadly. Maybe not in the life of an individual, 70 or 80 years, but in the life of a nation. And in order to treat infection, you need to diagnose it. But how do we diagnose cynicism? How do we diagnose the sense of helplessness, of victimhood? Where does it come from? You can point to some historical factors. Vietnam, Watergate, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and, I mean, even Robert Kennedy. These things sort of accelerate the collapse of institutional trust. And there are technology factors, right? The rise of the internet, social media, misinformation. But I think that there might be something more fundamental, more of a root cause. I'm not sure that we understand our system or how it works. I know a lot of really smart, hardworking, and capable people that couldn't tell you the structure of their state legislature, let alone name their representative. Ask yourself, do you know what a city manager does compared to the mayor or the mayor compared to city council? What does a comptroller do? What about a treasurer? Who oversees your elections? How do they work? I think that the Electoral College is a great example of this because 61% of Americans support abolishing it. But I would guess that a lot less can tell you how it actually works. And if we can't understand our system, we're more likely to see ourselves outside of it, to feel separate from it, to believe that we can't impact it, let alone change it. And we're more likely to believe lies about it. We can't treat an infection that we can't diagnose and you can't fix a system that you don't understand. That's why I wanted to talk to Sean Healy. Sean is the Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at iCivics. He leads our state and federal policy and advocacy work through the Civics Now Coalition. He oversees civic education campaigns in several states and plays an active role in recruiting supporters to fund policy, advocacy, and implementation efforts nationwide. He's also a big sports guy. As a reminder, my inbox is always open. So if you guys have thoughts on this episode, an idea for a future episode, a guest suggestion, or you just want to chat, you can always email me at talk at ModeratePartyPodcast.com. I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. Sean, thank you so much for being a guest on Moderate Party. How are you?
0: I'm well. It's good to be here.
1: Today, we're going to be talking about civic education. Civic engagement and democracy writ large. But before we do, can you tell me a little bit about your background and what kind of led you to this
0: field? Sure. So I I started my career as a high school civics teacher, and uh, had had the opportunity to teach this really innovative class where students were simulated at the legislative process not just for a couple of days, but for the whole semester. So it was called the legislative semester, and uh, I was really inspired to take that kind of statewide. I was new to Illinois at the time and the question I posed to my mentor is why does every student in Illinois not have this experience? And he pointed to me and he said, Sean, that, that's your problem to solve. So mm-hmm. uh, I turned to, to advocacy and did a lot of work at, at the state level to strengthen civic education. And uh, since you know the last couple of years, made this leap to iCivics to, to do some of this work at the national level. So long story short, I've, I've been uh, in the civic space my, my whole professional career, I actually still teach at the college level. I teach public policy, which is still kind of a fancy way of saying civics at the higher ed- level. And throughline uh, through line is this belief that if young people have the opportunity to have a high quality civic learning experience really throughout their K-12 trajectory, that they're going to be informed and effective participants in our constitutional democracy throughout their life. I've seen anecdotal evidence of that. Uh, I'm a political scientist who's researched it. So there's an empirical case for this that I'm, I'm sure we'll get to. But that is really the through, through line that young people, if empowered, make a fundamental difference in our, in our democracy.
1: When we talk about civic education, are we saying like kids need to watch Schoolhouse Rock every day or? Sure.
0: Yeah. So there's a, I would say, a fierce debate raging about what it means when we talk about civic education. And I'm going to kind of embrace a bit of, an maybe it's appropriate for a moderate party podcast. Uh, to, to embrace uh, kind of a more inclusive approach to civic education. So let me speak uh, to, to some of the debates. There's this grapple between civic knowledge. So, hey, we need to know a bunch bunch about the Constitution and the three branches uh, versus experience, right? That, hey, students learn about democracy by practicing it. I would say that's a false choice, that they're, they're both kind of re- mutually reinforcing. We mm-hmm. don't want people to engage in our democracy in kind of a blind way, right? They, they should have a general sense of what they're doing and what institutions do what and federalism. But at the same time, you know, just reading a bunch of books and memorizing a bunch of materials kind of has you sitting on the sidelines that democracy is a contact sport, right? It's participatory. Mm-hmm. So we need to do both of those things. And then there's there's a real uh, there's a real contest I would also say over – uh, what we teach right in terms of content, and it 's true that you know civic education, from its very early premise in this country, was an attempt to make people Americans right was an attempt uh to to develop some type of attachment to our institution to our founding documents. I think there 's real value in that, and that's mm-hmm. that 's a perspective that 's often put forth by by cons- our, our friends on the right um, our friends on the left are more apt to put forward a, a critique of our history, right? A, a critique mm-hmm. of our institutions. Uh, and I think there's something to be said about that, too, because uh, the beauty, I would say, of our system is the ability to affect change, to uh, live up to the words of, of, of Lincoln and Jefferson to, to, uh, and, frankly, the framers of our Constitution to, to Build a more perfect union. So a civic education should also equip young people to make our country better, right, through institutions. That's a long-winded response to your question. But ultimately, we're trying to build uh, civic knowledge among students, not just about Washington, but frankly, about state and local government, which is what most of the laws that impact us on a daily basis, that's, that's where they derive. It's about developing civic skills. So how can we have a conversation across difference, for example? Uh, that is a real civic skill that I think is transferable to, to other environments. And then the, this notion of dispositions, which just to unpack that a little bit, a sense that I can make a difference if I engage in our democracy and that institutions will be responsive to me.
1: How do you think that you teach civic education in our current polarized moment?
0: Yeah, well, it's it's, it's difficult, right? Uh, I, I started teaching uh, this in the, the late 90s, which which uh, at the time didn't seem like a, a kinder, gentler time, but, but it, it sure does now, right? Um, so that that was a polarized time too. As I was student teaching, they were impeaching Bill Clinton, right? So uh, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't uh, maybe the helicon days that, that we think of it as, but yeah, there's certainly evidence that uh, political polarization has increased uh, at both the elite level um, and at the mass level, and it makes it, more difficult to do this work, I would, I would also suggest it makes it more important. So how do you do it? Um, I, I, I think it's one, you know, there's a good debate about teachers' approach uh, to this. There's, I, I think, a false debate going on that uh, there's this massive effort to indoctrinate students. Uh, the research really doesn't bear that out. But it is critical that we engage students in structured conversations about controversial issues and that we make space for students, frankly, to disagree about these mm-hmm. issues, and frankly, to have structured conversations about them. Uh, ultimately, yeah, we love consensus, but sometimes uh, it's it's okay to dis- agree to disagree, and then also to understand that our system, uh, our institutions, really require compromise, right, to affect change. So how can we get to that place? So yeah, I would say talk a lot about through lines here, but a through line in my career is engaging students in conversations about current and controversial issues. It brings civics to life. Uh, and we even know uh, some of my expertise is in studying test scores, which isn't all that exciting, I know. But things <laughs> I've looked at is like, what, what moves student test scores when we measure their civic knowledge? And actually, the, one of the most powerful things we can do is engage them in conversations about current issues. And the striking thing about that, is the test doesn't measure current events knowledge? It can't, right? These are standardized tests, so it speaks oh, to the power of those conversations. And then I think it's I think it's also um, once again the experiential side of this. So can we simulate democratic processes like a legislature, uh, like a courtroom? Can we uh, sim? Can we do do mock elections? We're on the verge of a uh, midterm elections here. Of course, elections are teachable moments. Uh, can we embrace that in the classroom? There's a lot to be said about uh, experiential learning, like service learning. So connecting community service to, back to what students are studying in the classroom. Um, so so that kind of mix between the content uh, and the more kind of student-centered practices are what constitute an eff- effective civics classroom.
1: There's a quote that I really like, politics is the forming of a soul or something like that. And I think that civics, it does occupy a strange space where it's like it teaches us to, I mean, love our country, but also participate in our country and like care for each other. And I don't think that there is another class in school that captures that space.
0: Right, right. And, that you know, there, there's a lot of talk now in, in schools about uh, the so-called soft skills or, or social and emotional learning, which is which is woven kind of throughout the curriculum. And frankly, in a way, a school itself functions. And I I think you're right. There's not another dedicated class. I think it's also really important as we talk about young people and their civic development to talk about how a school functions. That a school, in theory, most of our students, about 90% nationally, still go to public schools. And Mm -hmm. that that a school uh, should function democratically, right? That students should have a voice uh, in in the functioning of that school. Uh, And that, frankly... Uh, schools teach lessons about how they operate in democracy or frankly too often, uh, in, in more, a more authoritarian fashion, right? So, uh, I think you're right in terms of the formal curriculum, but there's this informal curriculum that's part of K 12 education that I think we should also pay a lot of attention uh, to as we, as we develop citizens.
1: How do you mesh that with like what we saw at NYU with students forming a petition to have a professor fired? I mean, on the one hand, that's very Democratic. Um, and on the other, I don't think that's good for us either. If you can just get rid of people that disagree with you.
0: Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not familiar with the facts of that specific case, um, but mm-hmm. I have looked into this issue before, right? So it's this issue of uh, so-called cancel culture right. uh, in higher education has yeah, bubbled up for at least the last decade, uh, if not longer mm-hmm. in our country. And a lot, of, a lot of the attacks yeah, come from students with a more progressive bearing, and, and it's often uh, their concern about uh, certain right-wing or, or conservative speakers or professors. Um, and when I looked into this issue in a previous position, uh, wh- what I concluded was that it was actually our failure to develop appreciation for the First Amendment uh, specifically mm-hmm. and, and what, what, what the First Amendment Uh, means, right, the meaning of those five freedoms. And it was our failure to do it in a K-12 context because, frankly, by the time uh, students got to higher ed, it was too late. Many of them weren't majoring in subjects where there were even relevant classes, right? If you're Mm -hmm. studying to be an engineer, you're probably not taking a a political science class. Uh, So develop uh, an appreciation for the First Amendment and what that means. You know, it it really is, in the, the words of uh, former Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, freedom for the thought we hate, right? And that mm-hmm. uh, there is something about higher education um, where, where that marketplace of ideas should reign, right? And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think there are illiberal tendencies, once again, an appropriate place to have this conversation on, on a moderate party podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I would suggest there are illiberal tendencies uh, on the extremes on both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah. And that is is a genuine threat to democracy. Dissent is critical to a democracy, and uh, we should not shut it down. Uh, The answer to speech we don't like is more speech.
1: Right. If you really believe in what you're saying, it should stand up to an opposing viewpoint. That's right. So, Sean, what kind of civic education did you have in school? Like, I'm curious if your career is influenced by a great civic education or very poor civic education.
0: Yeah, I would say it's kind of kind of in the middle, right? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. People, people often ask me, like, what the impetus for uh, this career trajectory has been. And I was, just as a young person, very influenced or very interested in, in politics, very passionate about politics. And once again, wasn't, I wasn't particularly ideological. I just thought politics itself was fascinating, and I attribute that influence to my, my grandparents um, who were, were interested in politics, also consumed a lot of news. Um, a lot of it was TV news, but we also, you know, we had two newspapers. I grew up in Milwaukee. We had a morning and afternoon paper back then, and those are, are big factors, right? Uh, family, kind of a rich information-rich environment that, that influenced my trajectory, And then the other piece uh, that I think is underappreciated is extracurricular activities. And Mm -hmm. once again, I wasn't in civics-oriented extracurriculars. I was a jock, right? Um, (laughs) I was the the captain of the football team. And I was also kind of a quiet guy. And that forced me to to be more vocal and to develop uh, into a leader. Um, So that's a long way of saying, like, it doesn't all have to happen in the context of a civics class, right? There are mm-hmm. several factors that influence young people's civic development. Um, I did not have a, a, a specific class in civics, right? I, I grew up in Wisconsin, as I said, and the state still does not have a, a required civics class, right? So mm. I had, definitely had good social studies classes. I learned a lot. I was interested in those classes. Um, but, it, but it wasn't, uh, I, w- I would say, it wasn't, wasn't the primary uh, reason uh, that, it, that I'm at uh, where I am today. Um, but th- those other influences are are, are really important and, and we need to account for those too.
1: The influence from your grandparents is interesting because I don't think that my parents would ever describe themselves as like civically minded. But when I look back, they definitely were like, we talked about politics at dinner. We watched the yep. debates and like, I knew that that's something that you should do. Yep. And then, so I had an interest in it when it came about in school. Um, but As far as formal civic education, at least in Nevada, it's very sporadic. Like, we would learn about it in primary school with Schoolhouse Rock. I had a great social studies teacher in middle school. And then it went away until my senior year of high school when I took government. But I will say, like, that government class is the only class where we were encouraged to debate each other. And it was my favorite class in high school, but also one of the most challenging for that reason.
0: One kind of thing to celebrate, uh, your home state just last year strengthened uh, its its civics content requirements. And they're also adopting uh, something called a civic seal, which uh, will appear on students' diplomas and recognize not just excellence in, c- excellence in civic coursework, but project-based learning aligned with civic education. And Nevada is one of eight states that has one of these seals. And I, I should say I neglected this, this in my background story, but it's really critical that we have standalone courses in civic education because all of us are not afforded that experience of a rich, mm-hmm. uh, home environment where our parents are, are engaged. Uh, we're not, uh, necessarily afforded a rich information environment. There's an organization at Tufts university called circle. They talk about civic deserts and there are civic deserts all over mm-hmm. the country where there's not even a newspaper, uh, that's covering local affairs. Right. Um, so, that civics class is, is really critical. There are huge equity issues, right, in terms of who gets a good civic education. So students of color are less likely to get a good civic education than white students. Uh, lower income students, less likely. Students who are non-English proficient. You can go down the list, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that kind of baseline, having, we should have a course in civics in middle school. We recommend a semester in middle school. We recommend a full year in high school. Only six states are doing a full year. Um, so we have a long way to go, but that that is critical, particularly making sure that all of us have access to at least a baseline civic education in this country.
1: Civic deserts is an interesting concept because we've seen a collapse in labor unions and people are going to church much less than we were before. And it kind of leaves us without a community forum to be good civic citizens. How do you think that we recreate that?
0: Yeah, it's difficult, right? Because uh,
1: it's not on Reddit or Twitter, right. right? I mean,
0: right. No, it's very difficult. Yes. And so much of our civic life is online now. But what, what the online community enables is us, for, for us to find people that are a lot like us, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas historically, what you're talking about in a labor union or in a, a religious uh, congregation, uh, we, there's more likely to be difference, right? Uh, Robert Putnam is a famous political scientist and he wrote this book 20 years ago called Bowling Alone, right? And his metaphor mm-hmm. was, what does that mean? His metaphor was, and I don't know if this is still true, but in 2000, it was uh, that uh, more people were bowling than ever before, but we used to bowl in leagues. And when we bowled in leagues, uh, we grab beer and pizza and we talk about what was happening in our community with people that maybe weren't our best friends but we call them kind of weak ties and now we're bowling but we're bowling with close friends and family members we're not part of leagues anymore and he extrapolated that metaphor you went into labor unions religious organizations mm-hmm. that broadly across society and we we lack these weak ties and weak ties mm-hmm. are the, various pre- the very premise of democracy so yeah how do we how do we emulate that uh you know I think there are ways to get out of the echo chambers online, right? And that that's that's really critical. I still think there's something to be said about organizations that meet face-to-face. They don't have to be your traditional labor unions or, or uh, religious organizations. So I, I think it is critical that we're members of groups, that we take uh, leadership positions in groups. Uh, there are organizations set up uh, w- with the very premise of building bridges, right? Of yeah, facilitating conversations about public issues uh, with people who might not necessarily agree with us. And yeah, this this time we're living in now, we're not just polarized at an aggregate level, but we're polarized locally, right? So there there was this book that came out in two thousand eight called The Big Sword, and the argument was that we're we're segregating ourselves politically. We might not be doing that intentionally, mm-hmm. but by where we choose to live. So We live in a country now that if you're in an urban environment, probably your neighbor and everyone on your block is a Democrat. And then we live Mm -hmm. uh, in an environment that if you're in a rural area, uh, almost everyone in your community, 90% of people, 80 to 90% are voting Republican. Uh, And the only real contested area are the suburbs, right? Those are are the coin flips now. Um, So we've segregated ourselves to a point, and we know this about basic research, that uh, most of us don't talk about politics. In fact, we've been told not to, right? You don't talk about politics yeah, or religion, yeah. play company. But <laughs> if we do, if we do, we seek out people who agree with us. And what right. we know about that is it actually amplifies our... So there's a lot of head nodding. We come into a conversation with a certain position. We leave it even more polarized, right? Uh, whereas if we have conversations across difference, it actually brings us to the middle. So probably I would assume an aspiration of, The moderate part in its podcast.
1: Of course. Um, I think it it puts a weird amount of pressure on workplaces and schools yeah. because I think that that's the only place that you have to engage with strangers every day, like where you're likely to meet somebody that feels differently than you do, though as we geographically sort ourselves, that becomes less and less likely. But I think it puts a lot of pressure on these, these places that I'm not sure they are set up to bear. Do you think that yeah. it's a bad pressure or a positive pressure?
0: Well, yeah, I think we, we could we could come back to workplaces. I, I I don't know that they're all that well set up for it, and there is a lot of tension uh, in mm-hmm. workplaces because I because I, I think it's partly ideological, and I think it's actually partly generational, right? Which is probably something mm. workplaces have always had to deal with. Um, but uh, I I don't think workplaces know what to do. I think the traditional notion, and I think this is generational, was. Work was separate, right? Uh, that you mm-hmm. kind of put your head down, did the job, uh, was kind of removed from politics. That that may have never been true in reality, right? <laughs> but but I think people made that distinction. And I think we live in a time; it is a really political time, right? So so when the Supreme Court is weighing in on reproductive rights, for example, it's hard to just like, holy cow, they just overturned a fifty-year precedent. Let's put my head down and and get Stuff through the an spreadsheet, envelope. right? Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> So in, I, I'm by no means an expert of how to address this in a workplace. There's some work that the Annenberg uh, Foundation is funding. It's called Civics at Work that is mm. leaning into that. And it's, it's a real challenge. I would say schools, on the other hand, are better equipped to do this uh, for a few reasons. Um, one, there's a researcher. She's now dean of the School of Education at the, the University of Wisconsin, Diana Hess. And she, she makes the argument, her research backs this up that schools are actually, as you mentioned, one of the most ideologically heterogeneous places we'll ever occupy in our life, right? There's surprising political heterogeneity in a school setting, even in really blue places and really red places, okay? Uh, The second piece is, for most young people, they're still figuring this out, right? They're not highly committed to an ideological position. They certainly, students obviously have opinions and uh, in many cases, informed opinions, but they're still kind of sorting through their political identities, which is a really healthy thing. So that's actually, that's a, that's a really good mix from the perspective of an educator, right? You have right. heterogeneity, you have people still trying to kind of figure this out. They're maybe not deeply dug in. I've certainly had students who are, right? but uh, <laughs> they're still kind of working through this. And then you have at least the potential of a trained educator to facilitate these conversations. So I actually think it's a, it's a fantastic place uh, to do this. It's really tough to do that in this environment, right? Where, yeah, there is this sense uh, that there's this ideological agenda in schools to indoctrinate students. I don't think the, empir- the I've looked at this, the empirical evidence doesn't bear that out. Uh, most teachers look a lot like the communities in which they teach politically. Right. And most teachers are actually, uh, Education Week did a poll on this a few years back, quite moderate uh, in their views. Mm-hmm. Uh, teachers look like an ideological bell curve.
1: A lot of teachers listen
0: to this podcast. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 then, and then, you know, most teachers, it's actually a legitimate pedagogical consideration, but most teachers try to uh, assume a position of neutrality uh, or objectivity uh, when you discuss current issue to present not just two sides, but, but multiple sides. Uh, of an issue and to let students uh, draw their own conclusions about that, which is really responsible. There actually is a pedagogical case to be made, as long as teachers are intentional about this, of disclosing views and uh, just so long as they make space for students to disagree with them. I think that's a more dangerous position to take, a more Mm -hmm. fraught position to take uh, in this political environment. But uh, actually, the the empirical evidence suggests that so long as you're really intentional about uh, that decision, uh, that that you can make an argument kind of on either side of it.
1: The Rand Institute did a study where they polled teachers and asked what they thought the goal of civics education was, and they didn't say civics; they said critical thinking. Yeah, how does that hit you?
0: Yeah, well, so so I I, I think they asked. I think they gave teachers a, a long laundry list, and, and that mm-hmm. pulled above everything else. Yeah, I think we're in a I think we're in a a, a time. Uh, and this has been, you know, this challenge is, is as old as time, but, uh, you know, technology has, has uh, accelerated this to a degree where it almost feels out of control, that this and, informa- dis- and misinformation is everywhere. And it's not just related to, to, to our politics, but frankly, scientific debates, right? Frankly, any academic subject, uh, the debates that are happening are happening online and filtering through the good and the bad is critical. Um, so I think the notion that we need to develop critical thinkers as it relates to, to our civic life uh, is, is a very legitimate goal, right among many. But um, I, think, I think that is one of the, the, the top challenges that we're in right now is um, you know, we used to have debates about evidence, right? and we could agree to disagree when we put forth an evidence-based case. Uh, but we're in an era now where many people don't bring evidence to the table. Mm-hmm. They make claims that are not supported uh, by evidence. Sometimes they're quite persuasive, actually.
1: Well, they would be if you're not weighed down by the burden of facts.
0: Right, right, right. So, <laughs> so, 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 yeah. I, I, I don't have that full list of options in front of me of what it, yeah, what a, what a good civic education should be, but. Critical thinking, yeah, I I think is something that's probably uniform across academic subject areas. Yeah, there's this uh, uh, group out of Stanford. They're called the Stanford History Education Group, and they've they study what they call critical online literacy, which isn't kind of that same bucket as media literacy. And you may have seen the headlines on this, Hillary. They've uh, they've had uh, Stanford students, uh, PhD historians, middle school students. They've done this survey with a number of different groups. And put them through kind of a basic task of evaluating information online, and found they're not good at it. Even the PhD historians, <laughs> even the Stanford students are the most—that's actually apparently the most selective uh, school in the country for undergraduates. So, so quote unquote, the smartest kids in the country—they can't perform these basic tasks. And they they put the same task before fact checkers, and they do something totally different. Um, hmm. And part of it is. You know, we're, we've been taught traditionally when you evaluate a source, you know, you look at its footnotes, you kind of read it top to bottom. And the reality is you should probably leave that source immediately, start Googling it <laughs> and figuring out if it, if it's coming from a credible, credible place. So it's a skill set. It's a totally new skill set. Uh, we're not all that well equipped, uh, to teach it. There's an assumption amongst educators that students are good at this because they're so comfortable with devices. Students are mm-hmm. comfortable with devices, but they're not not—they're not good at this, as uh, confirmed by the Stanford study. Um, so it's really a, sk- a skill set th- that we need to teach. And it's not just a civics or a social studies thing. It's literally across academic subjects.
1: And it's so difficult because I try very hard when I'm researching for an episode to make sure that I'm providing good information, right? So I try to research the source and you go down these rabbit holes, like to use this as an example. Um, I'll bring this up later, but the I think it's the Civic Alliance. I'll fact check that. Put out a letter opposing a civic education bill. And I was like, that's curious. I should look into who they are before I decide to take that criticism to heart. And it's like, I don't always have two hours to deep dive into these things and try to figure it out just to know like one basic thing, I think that's difficult for people. It's a big burden to put on them.
0: No, it is. It is. Right. And, and I had a professor that, that always reminded me of that, that my, my aspirations for kind of the engaged citizen were always too lofty. Cause yeah, I'm a political animal, <laughs> right. I love this stuff at 24 seven, but most people are busy, right? They're, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just trying to, they're trying to, you know, survive the nine to five. They're trying to, Put food on the table. They're they're trying to run their kids to practice, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't they don't have the bandwidth to spend time on this. And we live in this time this period where th- there's more information sources than ever before. But how do we filter through the good and the bad? And that's that's a, that's a real challenge.
1: Especially when you have more information sources than we've ever had, and lower trust in media. Yep. yep. You would hope that you could depend on these certain institutions to give you good, credible information because a bunch of nerds like me and you have done the deep dive yep. so that those people don't have to. But when you have a collapse in trust in media, then it puts the burden on the citizen. Yep.
0: No, And I think, I think a lot is lost. I'm mean, going to sound like a dinosaur. I'm only in my <laughs> mid forties. Um, but uh, something is lost. Something's been lost as we've, we've gone away from print newspapers hmm. um, and, and, you know, obviously the New York times and the wall street journal and the Washington post, they're all still doing really well. And they now have a a national audience and most of us read it digitally. That's, that's amazing. But what's cratered is the the metropolitan daily newspaper. Mm -hmm. There's just not a revenue model for it anymore. They haven't been able to do the digital subscriptions enough to, to, to basically feed journalists, right? Which is you have to pay Mm -hmm. journalists. Um, and, uh, we, can't give this stuff all away for free, so the the Metropolitan Daily is collapsing and so so one, we literally don't have these these institutions reporting the news like they used to covering city hall, covering the state capitol because you and I even you and I don't have time to pay attention to that every day. so we've lost that I consume a ton of news, right uh, from from way more sources than I used to, but there's something about the newspaper in that. There were stories in there like I'm always going to read the sports page I'm always going to read the stories uh, stories about the election, but then there were stories in there I read that I don't read now right but I read them because yeah I was in the it was in the print paper uh there there was something about it uh that uh in that that yeah exposed us to to a wider view of the issues of the day, a wider view of uh, frankly viewpoints we read a good good editorial section an op ed page that's gone mm-hmm. and That's not coming back. Right. So uh, I don't raise that. But then how do you recreate that? And that's something I struggle to do with my students. Because, yeah, when I started teaching, we used to get a a pile of Chicago Tribunes delivered every day. Um, So what's the modern equivalent to that? How do we kind of recreate that newspaper that was this unifying piece that gave us a common set of information? Because that's what we don't have anymore,
1: right? You're only finding the news that you go searching for, unless it's a headline, or unless it's a story of a murder somewhere in this country. Because I feel like that's the news I never escape. Like yep. if anyone is hurt right. anywhere, that will be in my like Facebook or my Instagram feed. But what's right. going on in my local state house is absent,
0: right? No, state house reporting is absolutely cratered, absolutely cratered, particularly in states where. The capital is not a major metropolitan. Mm. so that, that that's yeah. So I live in Illinois. Springfield is three and a half hours from Chicago, and they, they've gone just in the last decade from like four dozen people covering the capital to just a handful now, and that's that's a real loss for democracy.
1: Are you implying that Springfield and Chicago are not mutually glamorous and exciting? Uh, it's it's
0: not, but it's you know it's not. Springfield's not where the major. News organizations in the state are based, right? So they're they're typically in any given state, they're based in the major metro areas. And yeah, it costs money to have somebody somewhere else, somebody working remotely. And frank, frankly, frankly, uh, those types of stories are broccoli, right? Yeah. Know, people like you yeah. and I, pe- people like you and I consume them, but as you said, that's not the type of story that is interesting. The more casual news consumer.
1: Especially if you have like 10 minutes to read the news and you have to choose right. between a crazy thing that like Trump has said or a bill that might actually impact your life but has such a boring title.
0: Right. That guy was in committee hearings today. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there is a, you know, there is a nonprofit model that's emerging and, and mm-hmm. you know, probably most prominently in Texas, the Texas Tribune, but California, you have Cal Matters. Yeah. This nonprofit model that's kind of going back to covering. Uh, state and local government. So I, th- I think there's promise there and I mm-hmm. would encourage listeners to to look into those sources and to to subscribe and become members.
1: Yeah, we just had uh, John Ralston on who is the CEO yeah, of the Nevada Independent. Independent and our sweet friend of the pod, Samantha, is a Report for America reporter at the Ohio State House, and that is a nonprofit that pays half of her salary so that That's the great. Associated Press doesn't have to bear the full burden. That's great. But um, I do want to zoom out a little bit How do you feel about the direction that the country is headed in right now?
0: Yeah, I get asked that a lot because and I think I'm I'm mostly asked it from the perspective of like, give me some reason for optimism, right? Because uh, I'm not seeing this. There's a lot not to like, right? Clearly, there are real problems. Inflation is at a level that most of us haven't seen in our lifetimes, or I was very little last time it was was this bad. Crime rates are rising after decades of falling. It does seem like uh, you know we've never resolved the immigration issue, at least since the 1980s, the last time we weighed into it into a substantive way. The Supreme Court has weighed in on a number of contentious issues and I think further divided the country and undermined some of the trust in that institution. So those are some of the issue-based problems. We talked earlier about polarization and polarization, frankly, that we haven't seen uh, since the Civil War, um, and trust in institutions, as as you mentioned, that have been on a decline really since the late 1960s. So there's a lot of despair, I think, to point to in, in the moment. And we're such a divided country; we toggle back and forth between the two political parties, and the the kind of result of all that is is really just kind of stalemate, right? Dysfunction. So I always tell people, I'm I'm Pessimistic about the short term. (laughs) I'm more optimistic about the long term because, one, if you read history, we've been in tough spots before. Maybe not in my lifetime or your lifetime to this degree, but we've seen moments of despair like this in the past. And I still have, unlike maybe the population as a whole, a lot of trust in our institutions and their durability. And then I have a lot of faith actually in the American people uh particularly once again it's 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 why I get up every day and I go look in the mirror uh that if we invest in young people and their civic development that we'll empower them to strengthen and secure this democracy. Um and, and those are not just talking points. That's something I genuinely like I've literally committed my career to this. And I think the challenge was real as I started this work more than two decades ago, but it seems even more pronounced right now. So there are other things we probably need to do uh, to shore up our institutions, to reform our institutions, mm-hmm. to equip them for the 21st century. But the, I think the most promising long-term solution is investing in young people. We have backed away for 50 years from investing in young people's civic education. I, I think the best long-term solution is investing uh in the next 50 years.
1: Do you think that A lack of civic education is a cause for the ideological conflicts that we're facing as a nation.
0: I do, and and you know, it's that's a challenging question because some of the most polarized people are actually some of the most educated people. So there's not a direct line right between or the most informed educated educated right informed and being not polarized or having more moderated views. Um, But I think that. I think the fundamental problem isn't so much the polarization. Like, if we can agree to have these debates, which I think can be healthy Mm -hmm. in the context of institutions, uh, I think we can get to the right place. We can use the, we can work through these institutions that have stood the test of time. But we're at a place now where distrust of institutions is so widespread that that's the thing that people on the left and the right agree about, right? That they don't uh, trust our institutions. So I think the real damage that's been done is to institutions, mm-hmm. and that is a result of our disinvestment uh, in civic education and our deprioritization of civic education. And, and so, so building back that trust in institutions, that trust in one another, that frankly, and then uh, frankly, I can disagree with you right about any given issue within the confines of these institutions. But that collectively, we need to work through these institutions to find compromise and move our country forward. So I think that's what a good civic education does: uh, it develops an attachment to institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it frankly builds trust in one another, and it equips us to have these healthy ideological debates. Like I, I don't think ideological debates, uh, by their nature, are a bad thing. We Mm-mm. have a system that's actually well-designed to facilitate them. And those debates are as old as our country. Our country mm-hmm. isn't in itself a debate, right? Uh, but what's lost here is if we don't trust our institutions, uh, w- what is the recourse, right? The recourse is probably not these institutions. It's not even that maybe democracy. And that's, that's an existential threat right? what, if we turn away from our institutions.
1: I think that one of the places you also see that fracture is in the type of leaders that we are electing and sending to Congress because, I i mean, there's a quote out there that's like, you get the leaders that you deserve. And I don't buy into that fully, but what I do buy into is like, we are sending people to office that don't want to go because of this civic pull that they're feeling. They want to go for a myriad of reasons. None of them are exclusively because they have this commitment to civics. I do think that people get into state and local politics, not for the fame, obviously, but for their commitment to service. But nationally, we're electing people that are great on the news, um, but actually at times can seem to have like an animus for the country.
0: Yeah. No, and I, I, th- I think they play to, uh, our, frankly, a population that is pretty low information. right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's a product of, of a poor civic education. And I also think it's important to say uh my my day job is working at the state and the federal level mostly with legislators uh from across the aisle right mm-hmm. republicans and democrats and independents uh to to strengthen civic education and uh my experience like particularly once the cameras go away yeah uh, is that yeah there there are good people at every level committed to this issue so So the the profile that you put forth certainly exists. I think it exists at every level of our government, right? (laughs) But in some ways, I would suggest these legislators and, and frankly, policymakers more generally that got into this for the right reasons are captive to a system, right? As you said, Mm -hmm. privileges people that are good on on TV Mm -hmm. uh, or radio or whatever the medium, uh, social media uh, over substance and over, over affecting positive change through policy.
1: I think that that is a good point. Maybe it is the priorities of the electorate as opposed to the policymakers themselves.
0: Well, it is. And, and you know, I think this is a cycle. I know this isn't a podcast about the election. This is a cycle that, you know, all of the factors uh, favor the out party. But uh, to me, what's been lacking in this midterm cycle is a debate about issues, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, like inf- inflation is anytime we go to the grocery store or fill up our, our car with gas, like we're staring that in the face. It's a real issue. But what are the two parties going to do to, to resolve it, right?
1: Especially inflation because it's a difficult issue. If there was an obvious answer, we would have fixed it. But I think yeah. the difficult issues are where we need debate the most.
0: Right. But th- once again, I, I just attribute that to the failure to to educate people civically. Like these campaigns are not debates and we may well blame the in-party for inflation, right? That's, once again, mm-hmm. as old as time, but yeah. uh, but then, yeah, what is the out-party going to do to resolve it, right? I think we should demand mm-hmm. that also. And I'm not confident we're having that type of debate.
1: So one of the things that I think we've both hit on throughout this conversation is a crisis in civic education. Is it a crisis? And if so, like how how do we know what level of alarm should we have about civic education?
0: Well, I think we should be alarmed. Uh, you know, I often like to say that there are, there are students in this country that are getting a good civic education. So it's not to say that th- there are, there are all kinds of signs of promise out there. There are huge equity issues. So who you are as a student, where you live, uh, is determinant of the type of civic education you get. Uh, which which I, I think is really problematic. Uh, there is concerning data. So we have a national assessment of educational progress it's called the education, the, the nation's report card. And they, they test students in civics. They test them in us history and that those tests across subject areas have the lowest scores. So last time we did this was 2018, 24% of eighth graders were proficient in civics and only 15% in us history. So, um, I think it's fair to say there is a crisis. Um, we've we've done a, a state policy scan. We found that only six states require a full year of civics in high school. Um, most have a half-year course. For a lot of students, that's the only civics class they're ever going to get. Uh, mm. About half are doing something in kind of the middle school space, uh, so there's a lot of room to grow there. Uh, we've done the math at the federal level, uh, and we've determined that uh, the United States government the federal government is investing $0.05 per K-12 student in civics. And and we found a comparison for STEM subjects It was $50. So that just speaks to the level of prioritization. Uh, Mm -hmm. And if it's not a crisis, I I would say it's pretty close to one. And from the perspective of kind of a quality of opportunity, I think there is a real Mm -hmm. crisis. So uh, some kids are getting a great civic education in this country. Many are not.
1: What do you think the country looks like if we change it? If everybody's getting a strong civic education, what does the country look like?
0: So I I think we get closer to that ideal, right? Closer without having rose-colored glasses here. Closer to that ideal of of a more perfect union where, one, participation in this country is more equitable. Um, I, I always talk when I get in front of a group. I say, hey, the face of civic engagement in this country looks like me. I'm white. Um, I'm middle upper income. I'm highly educated. If you peel those layers back, you're less likely to participate in a lot of ways in our democracy. In fact, voting's the most equitable thing we do. Um, once you get outside of voting, um, you know, if you talk about contacting public officials, donating to to a charitable cause, uh, uh, you're, you're exponentially less likely to participate. Attending a public meeting, exponentially less likely to participate. So I think participation looks more equitable. And we know there's a direct relationship between who participates and the type of policy outcomes that we have in this country. So I think it really would affect policy change. And I don't think that leans one direction or the other politically, mm-hmm. actually. Um, I, think, I, I think the right and the left have no shortage probably of good and bad ideas. But, mm-hmm. but frankly, so many of us are not engaged and therefore don't necessarily have a direct claim On public policy outcomes it impacts us but frankly if if we're not engaged in the process we're not represented all that well right Mm -hmm. Um, so so I think uh, one uh, I would I would guess that polarization uh, would would be uh, lessened Uh, I guess that we'd be able to have some of these tough arguments across difference Mm -hmm. I guess that compromise uh, I should go beyond guess predict that compromise uh, is possible at every layer of government. So, so this really started to grip our country at the national level, but now it's playing, playing out at the in state capitals and even city halls. Um, school but boards. Yeah. I, I just exactly. So I happen to think a, a rising tide, uh, lifts all boats and, mm-hmm. you know, we are not living up uh, to the tenets of a constitutional democracy, which re- really relies on uh, mass participation. And frankly, for all of us being equipped for that mass participation, and so I think this system works so much better uh, with a bottom-up approach than a top-down approach. And that's what we have right now is a top-down approach, where most of us are sitting on the sidelines, particularly outside of election cycles. Most of mm-hmm. us are sitting on the sidelines, and we let the professional politicians um, make decisions for us, and often more in alignment with, with interests that don't necessarily, mm-hmm. necessarily represent ours. So I think just broadly, we're better off with mass civic education, uh, which f- facilitates informed and effective participation.
1: So how do we get more of it?
0: Well, I think uh, a lot of it plays out at the state level, right? So, mm-hmm. so uh, in terms of uh, what's taught, how it's taught, those decisions are made uh, at the state and local level. I represent a coalition called Civics Now. We've put forth a policy menu of options. Starts with having dedicated courses in civics. We think students should have project-based learning opportunities. There's a lot more to the mix. We think that uh, states should put funding into this, right? Um, But then there's a companion role for the federal government to play. Uh, We have a bill we're working on right now. It's getting late in the 117th Congress, but it's called the Civic Secures Democracy Act. That would mostly bring funding to states and and uh, pass that money down to school districts to expand civic learning opportunities for students. It's a bipartisan bill. It's a bicameral bill. Uh, and if we got that passed, as it's written, we'd go from $0.05 cents a student to $18 a student. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a fundamental role, we think, for the federal government to play, particularly on the funding side. So those are a couple of things. But as you mentioned earlier with school boards, a lot of this plays out locally. So decisions about what's taught and how it's taught are made at that local level. And I think that's a really good place for us to engage at, to demand. Mm-hmm. Uh, their schools put forth a plan uh, for student civic development throughout their, their K-12 experience in that district.
1: So I want to circle back to the bill that you were talking about, um, the Civic Secures Democracy Act, which has been strangely controversial Because people on the right, not all of them, but um, several high-profile pundits have talked about, and I guess Ron DeSantis have talked about how this indoctrinates critical race theory. What do you say to that?
0: So I'm not going to evaluate, uh, you know, their motivation, right? But I I Mm -hmm. can weigh in in terms of, yeah, address some of the critiques of the bill and, you know. Starting out from a standpoint that the bill uh, is agnostic on curriculum, um, it uh, actually takes a position there as a rule of construction. It forbids the imposition of any national curriculum, so that that claim is impossible, right? There's, Mm -hmm. and there. Moreover, uh, we worked uh, with our our co-sponsors to revise the bill uh, to put guardrails in place. And specifically define what we meant by civic education, and it really is a focus. I, I, I uh, encourage our critics to read the bill. Encourage uh, <laughs> our supporters to read the bill too. Uh, and it's not that long a bill. It's it's thirty five pages, and actually not it's not that long. It's such
1: longer. a manageable length compared to. Yeah, yeah, to it really back is. Better.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and and in that bill, we define what we mean by civic education, and I, I think you'll find uh, it doesn't land anywhere close. To those claims of of some of our critics. Uh, The truth is that decisions in our country about what's taught and how it's taught are made at the state level and often at the district level, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, states are uh, taking measures uh, to restrict what's taught, right? States are also taking measures proactively to say, hey, you should teach about this, right? Uh, The bill respects that. This is a a federal system. Uh, it's a system that, uh, for the most part is premised on local control. And this bill is respective of that. What it does more than anything is empowers, uh, local school districts to do more, to provide more civic learning opportunities for students, to buy training opportunities for, for teachers, to have, to provide access to high quality curriculum and materials. So it really is an exercise in federalism. Uh, So those Mm -hmm. those claims are are, uh, purely false.
1: And I will say, dear listeners, I have read said 35 page bill and genuinely could not find critical race theory or anything of the like in the bill. So it's one of the reasons that I wanted you to respond to it, Sean, because I was like, is there did I miss something (laughs) or I like I don't even really think that it says anything that leans that way. Um, It's very
0: much a focus on our our government institutions, on the Constitution, on the Declaration of Independence. So it is a focus on foundational civic knowledge. And that's one thing, actually, that as Americans, we agree on. We have a a poll coming out in the next week that will attest to that. Uh, We actually asked Americans, like, when it comes to civics, what do you want taught? And they Mm -hmm. they basically said, yeah, we want a focus on the founding documents. We want to focus on uh, our, our institutions, our three branches, and we want to focus on how do you participate in our democracy. That's that's what Americans want civics to be, and that's that's what our bill privileges.
1: Mm-hmm. Sean, I have really enjoyed this conversation a lot. This is our closing note. What can listeners do to help get that bill passed or to engage with the work that you that you're doing?
0: Yeah, thank thank you, one for the opportunity, Hillary, and I, I too have enjoyed this and would be elated to come back. So. <laughs> Go to our website, uh, civicsnowcivxnow.org. And on our website, we have information about the federal bill, the Civics Secures Democracy Act. We have online tools where you can, you can look up your senators and your representative. I know the, the dedicated listeners of this show, you, you know those people, but we actually uh, provide pre-populated emails that you can customize to, to your own liking. We provide call scripts and give you the, the phone numbers uh, and the email addresses to those offices. Literally takes a couple of minutes. And uh, we have just a couple of months till till uh, this Congress expires, this bill turns into a pumpkin. So, so please do that uh, immediately. Um, as I said, a lot of this work plays out at the state level. So check out some of the work we're doing at the state level that's on the website. Check out what your state's doing with respect to civics and frankly, what it's not doing. And if you're really interested, we have state coalitions. We'd love to connect you to at that level. And maybe at, at just a base level, uh, sign up for our newsletter. We put out a monthly newsletter and you just can follow what we're doing and uh, uh, pay attention to, to, to some of the causes that are playing out at the local level that I think maybe are most important and, and most affect us.
1: I'm pretty sure they can follow you on social media too, right?
0: Yeah, we have a handle at civics now and uh, my handle is at civics in the USA.
1: Wonderful. Sean, thank you. Thank you. All right, guys, that's it for this conversation. But I do have a small housekeeping note that I want to leave you with. The bill that Sean referred to is unlikely to be called for a vote before the conclusion of the 117th Congress. But I would like to say a sincere thank you on behalf of Sean and the Civics Now Coalition to the co-sponsors of the bill, Representative Delario, Cole and Blumenauer, as well as Senator Coons and Cornyn for their fierce advocacy for a once in a generation federal investment in K through 12 civic education. The coalition's not going to stop fighting. The effort to pass this bill will begin brand new with the new Congress in January. If this is something that you're interested in, stay tuned because we will keep you posted. Don't forget to like, rate, and review this podcast wherever you're listening. I know that you've probably heard this a dozen times because you probably listened to other podcasts, but it does actually help this podcast move up in the algorithm, and that helps people find us. Being a moderate can be lonely sometimes. Being politically homeless can be even lonelier. And we just want to make sure that those people don't have to be lonely alone. That's it for me, guys. I will see you next week. Bye!